Don't sit down yet. Everyone, please remain standing for the reading of the word. From John 14, 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the reading of the word. Now you may be seated. It's good to worship with everyone. Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. If you're new, uh, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us, and we'd love to be able to connect with you after service if we haven't had a chance to do so, but welcome to service tonight. And uh, everyone else who's an old-timer, it's always good to see brothers and sisters and to worship together. Tonight, we're starting a new series called Greater Things. If you heard Amy when she just read our passage from tonight from John uh, 14, Jesus talks about those who believe in him doing greater works. And so we want to talk about greater things uh, over the next several weeks. The text for our series for the next about 12 weeks is going to be John chapters 13 through 17. So we're going to look at four chapters over the course of about 12 weeks. And the context for this is Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be arrested and betrayed and uh, ultimately crucified. And on the night when he's to be arrested and betrayed, he's having this supper, this last supper with the 12 disciples. And so it's this really kind of intimate setting where he's talking with the 12 who have followed him most closely. And it's kind of like uh, Jesus saying, I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to go away. Here's what's about to happen. Let me give you some really important, crucial, encouraging, foundational details before I'm arrested, before I'm crucified, and before all things kind of start uh, getting really, really intense. And so we're going to look at that conversation Jesus has with the disciples there in John chapter 13 through 17, that conversation he has with the disciples there at the Last Supper. And so our key text for the whole series is John 14, verses 12 through 14, that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So that language of greater works, we want to focus on that. We want to emphasize that, and that's why the series title is called Greater Things. We want to ask the Lord to do greater things in us and among us and through us for his glory, including delivering us from these gnats. Is anyone else being attacked my word. We're done with the Exodus series. Apparently the weather is a little behind and sent the gnats late. All right. So the question in my mind that comes up is what, what do you all think of when you hear the word great things or greatness? When Jesus says, those who believe in me will do greater works, what comes to mind? I think a lot of the times when we think of greatness or great things, we think of people who are maybe famous. We think of people who are uh, wealthy, we think of people who have a lot of status, position, power, recognition. If we want to pursue greatness in our lives, sometimes it's very tempting to, to gravitate to those things, to become a powerful person, a person with position, a person with prestige, wealth, or fame, some kind of status. So when Jesus says that he wants 
those who believe in him to do greater works. What is he getting at? What is he driving at? And what we'll find tonight is that he's really talking about something very different than what we commonly assume of greater things. But to get to that, it helps to look at these chapters as a whole. John 13 through 17, we're going to see the kind of things Jesus talks about. When he mentions greater things or greater works, what else is Jesus talking about in these four chapters? So we'll move quickly for the sake of the gnats and for sake of everyone's sanity. (laughs) So in John 13, uh, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says this, uh, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So Jesus in John 14 says, those who believe in him will do greater works. But before that, already the chapter before, Jesus has given them this powerful, visual, symbolic act of washing feet to say, Whatever greater works means, whatever it means to do great things, it's going to entail humble service. It's going to entail humble service. Jesus himself, who says, I've done great things. Those who believe in me will do great works like I have done and even greater things. If he's done these great works, but yeah, he's willing to humbly wash his disciples' feet. What that means is greatness is combined. It's ingredient with humble service. And we don't usually think of greatness and humble service together naturally. At least we don't. There's a growing trend of focusing on servant leadership. That's a wonderful trend that's been growing over the last several decades. But that's not our common way of thinking about greatness. We don't often think immediately of greatness and humble service together. So then also look at John 15. Go to John 15, verses 10 through 11. These should be on your sermon notes that are there on the page where the lyrics were so you can follow along with these texts. John 15, verses 10 through 11 says this, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When you think of greatness and aspiring to greatness, do you commonly think of keeping commandments? Do you commonly think of rule keeping? (laughs) In our culture, in our time, it's not common to think of greatness and keeping commandments. There was a famous philosopher in the late 1800s named Friedrich Nietzsche. If you want to see a kingly mustache, look up a Google image of Friedrich Nietzsche, and you will be immensely edified and blessed if you are on the search for a major mustache. But Nietzsche, famous philosopher, he said, greatness has typically come in Western culture when people have been willing to push against the rules and act upon their impulses and act upon their instincts, act upon their desires. So Nietzsche was not a big fan of Judaism or Christianity. Nietzsche said Judaism and Christianity teach people things called virtues. And virtues are deeply problematic, according to Nietzsche, because they cause us to say no to our impulses or our desires. But according to Nietzsche, in Western culture, when anything great has been done, it's been because somebody's been brave and courageous enough to say yes to their desires and their impulses. And much of our culture has kind of been steeped in that kind of an idea, which is that we should all not conform to all these social norms, don't conform to the rules, because greatness is found in pushing against the rules. Now, if the rules are bad, and we've seen plenty of cases in Western culture when people have given us bad rules, or people have misinterpreted the Bible and given us very bad rules, we have seen that that is problematic, right? Bad rules don't make for good living. 
the Jesus commandments. And Jesus rules are good. And when we're able to follow those, it can lead to goodness and can even lead to greatness. So Jesus is saying, uh, his, those who believe in him will do greater things and greatness will entail humble service. Greatness will entail submitting to Jesus' commands, but greatness will also entail suffering. Greatness could also entail suffering in the form of being hated by the world. So all in the same context of all these same chapters, this is John 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is saying, be prepared for the world to oppose you and know that the world has also opposed me and hated me. So if the world hates you and opposes you, know that it is already, already opposed and hated me. So when Jesus talks about greatness, he said, greatness is going to involve humble service. Greatness is also going to entail uh, submitting to Jesus' commands, but greatness will also include the likelihood of suffering. How many of you are saying this sounds great? When Jesus is just says, greater things you're going to do, these don't typically stand out to us as great things. It doesn't sound super exciting or animating. How many of you would immediately stand up and say, sign me up for suffering, sign me up for keeping the rules, and sign me up for humble service? It's not easy to necessarily sign up for those things, and we don't associate those things with greatness. But Jesus is turning our notions of greatness upside down. He's challenging them. He's giving us an upside-down view of greatness. It's a paradox that the way up is actually down. The way to greatness is through service, it's through submission to Jesus' commands, and through likely suffering. So let's talk about that a little bit tonight. Our usual way of thinking about greatness, Jesus also kind of gives us a glimpse into that. At least the gospel gives us a glimpse into that. This is from a different gospel. This is Luke 22. Verses 20 through 20, uh, 24 through 26. And this is uh, describing a similar time. This is, uh, Luke is talking about when Jesus is with the disciples on the night he's arrested and betrayed. And so Luke says that this happens at the same, that same night when Jesus is with the disciples. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as what? The greatest. This is a dispute among the disciples. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So Jesus' disciples are arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom, who's the greatest among Jesus' followers. And they're having this disagreement. And it kind of gives us a glimpse of our typical way of thinking about greatest. Who is greatest? What happens in our typical ways about thinking is that it tends to put us at odds with others. What kind of conversation are they having here? What's the word it uses to describe it? You can say it out loud. That's okay. Dispute. These guys aren't sitting down for coffee, having a loving conversation and saying, John, you're really gifted at X. Or Matthew, you're really good with numbers. Or, Peter, you're really great at fishing. Or, Peter, you're ha you have such strong faith. You're so filled with faith. These guys aren't sitting around complimenting one another, affirming one another, building strong relationship with one another. They're disputing. 
They're arguing about who is greatest. When we pursue greatness, oftentimes it puts us at odds with other people. If your view of what will make you great is financial success, you will likely fixate on your finances and pursue your financial goals. But what happens as we fix our eyes on a goal, it causes us to end up having blinders on, and we often don't see other things around us. Martin Heidegger was a philosopher in the mid-1900s, and he said, the world shows up for us based upon what we care about. So let's say you walk into uh, somebody's house, and you're an engineer. What's going to show up? What do you care about? You care about the structure of a building, the design of a building. You might look at how a house is designed. Let's say you're in the arts. You walk into a house, and you're not concerned about the design and the structure. You're concerned about the aesthetics, what's hanging in the house, what color carpet is there, uh, what color hardwood. You're looking at all the aesthetics of a house. If you're me, and what I care about is food, I want to know, what do I smell in the house? <laughs> do I smell roast beef? Do I s- smell fried chicken? Is there st- what is there to eat here? And so what you care about dictates what shows up for you. Now, it doesn't dictate what's in the room. It dictates what you see. It dictates what I see. And if my goal is financial success, and that somehow or another financial success will make me great, I focus on that, and I don't see other things around me, such as the needs of other people, opportunities to serve other people. I don't even see or recognize those if I'm fixated on financial success as a way of attaining greatness. Whatever our hopes are for greatness, we fix our gaze on that thing, we focus on it, and we don't see the people around us that we could or should be serving. Now, that's, that's like in a kind of a benign case, but in more sinister cases, what happens is as we focus on wanting to be great in some other way, we start to view other people as obstacles to that greatness. In some cases, we could maybe wish harm or misfortune upon somebody. We secretly celebrate when somebody has misfortune because that means all of a sudden they're out of the running in the greatness race. This can happen in your marriage. If you've been married, you know that can happen in your marriage. This happens with roommates. This happens with friends. This happens with coworkers. When our desire for greatness puts us at odds with other people, and instead of serving them and celebrating their victories and rejoicing with them, we end up in a position where we're not actually really serving or caring about other people. So lest you think that this is only something that like type A personalities struggle with, Type A personalities do tend to struggle with greatness, uh, temptations towards greatness in their own ways. But I used to think, well, I'm kind of, I think I've got like, let me count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. I've got 20 uh, gnats here. So we're going to move quickly, everyone. <laughs> 20 gnats on my notes. I'm having a hard time telling if this is a letter or if it's a gnat moving. So if I stumble over my words, it's because the words are literally moving on me. So uh, you might assume, well, I'm not a type A personality. I don't set these hard goals. I don't drive after them. I'm not the kind of person that wakes up at like four in the morning to hit my goals. I'm a, I'm a, a person who's not driven by those kinds of things. Well, and that's kind of the way I was much of my life. And I thought, you know, I'm a pretty humble guy, pretty relaxed and laid back. I'm not trying to be greater than other people. But my own struggle with greatness kind of showed up in, in some more subtle ways. I remember one time Mindy and I were driving through a neighborhood when I was in college And we ended up in this neighborhood that was a little wealthier. Uh, People had uh, nicer houses that I remember growing up in. 
And this kind of like envy started to stir in me that I, that I wasn't familiar with. And I just started saying things like, these people have spent way too much money on their houses. And they weren't even like mansions. Like, they were nice, nice houses. They were more expensive than the house that I grew up in, but they weren't like overtly opulent. And yet I started saying things like, these people have spent way too much money on their houses. Because I looked at their financial greatness compared to what I was used to. And I was putting it under the guise of humility. I would never live in a house like that. But secretly inside, what was stirring was envy. What I wanted was to be able to say, I wish I could get a house like that. Because maybe then I'd be a great person financially. I wanted that greatness, but I was able to hide it under this false kind of veneer of humility. I would never want to have a house like that. That's too expensive. Why not save your money and use it for better things, like serving those who who are poor or taking care of the needy? This kind of desire for greatness can show up even if you are a more humble person and not necessarily that type A person who's driven by all these goals. It shows up in that envy of those people who, who maybe have these other forms of greatness. And it shows up in sour grapes or being resentful of those people who are great. So thinking of greatness like this is all over the place. It tempts us a lot. It's very, very tempting. And why is it tempting? It's tempting because much of the time in our lives, we struggle with feeling like we're not very worthwhile. We struggle with self-worth. Most of us will look at, the, look at our lives and say, what have I really accomplished? Or most of us will look at our lives and say, look at my failures. Look at all the ways I just don't measure up to people's expectations. Look at all the ways I don't measure up to my own expectations. Think about things that we've done in our past that we're ashamed of, we're embarrassed of, regrets that we have. And then when you hit a success, does that not feel really good? They agree. (laughs) There's a different kind of success, you all. Let me just tell you about it. It's so intoxicating when you get that A. Like I remember like struggling through school at certain points and feeling like a failure. But man, when you get that next A, it feels so good. And sometimes it moves beyond that when you start comparing yourself to other people and you feel better than the person to the right or better than the person on the left. There's an intoxicating kind of quality to that. It feels so good. It seems like it covers up our past, covers up our foibles. All the things that we're ashamed and embarrassed of, our accomplishments seem to kind of wash those away. And we can take this sense of uh, uh, like joy and well-being and how great we've made ourselves. It's very, very tempting. But this kind of greatness, even though it's tempting, it's also taxing and it's toxic. It might be tempting, but it's taxing and it's toxic. How is it taxing? It demands a lot of us. We have to continually top our successes and hit the new greatness level. But it's also toxic in terms of what it does with our relationships. It can poison our relationships with others, put us in a position where we're not caring about others. We don't see their needs. We don't see them. We don't recognize their circumstances. We don't care for them because we're so focused on our own greatness. We compare ourselves to others, maybe even view them as people that we have to compete with to be greater than them. It's toxic 
to our relationships, which is why Paul has to bring this up, the Apostle Paul in a book of the New Testament, Galatians 5, verses 14 and 15, and say, the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's good. God would have us to serve others, love others. But what does he say? The opposite of that is biting and devouring one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When we get into these modes of pursuing greatness and pursuing Uh, this sense of being better than others or having outdone others, it causes us to consume and devour one another. It's not good for our relationships. And this is why even people like T.S. Eliot have said things like this. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Worldly forms of greatness. The disciples were prone to it. I'm prone to it. We all struggle with it in our own ways. It's tempting, but it's taxing, and it's toxic, which is why it's such good news that Jesus gives us a picture of greatness that is very different, an upside-down, otherworldly form of greatness that is so good. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The very disciples who are arguing about who is greatest, Jesus shows them what greatness looks like. He bends down like a servant and washes their feet. Jesus gives them commands, not just arbitrary rules to follow, but commands about loving one another. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Just as I've served you by washing your feet, you're supposed to love one another by serving each other in this way. In a world where we often are tempted to define greatness in ways that cause us to be self-absorbed, self-consumed, self-exalting to the detriment of others, Jesus teaches us that true greatness is found in serving others, putting them before ourselves. Jesus comes to teach a way of greatness that is life-giving instead of taxing toxic. And this is God's nature, to give of himself to others. The scripture says that God is love. God is love in his being. And we see that in the gospel of John spelled out. God the Father glorifies Jesus, the Son, as he uh, wants to shine this light of glory on Jesus. But Jesus wants to obey the Father and glorify the Father. So Jesus is there to serve the Father. And just as the Father has served the Son and the Holy Spirit shows up, and the Holy Spirit wants to shine a light on Jesus, he serves Jesus. God is love in his very being in that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are constantly serving one another. And that God creates you and me in his image to be able to serve one another in such a way that we look like this God of love. Every time we serve one another, give of ourselves to one another, we look like the God who is love, who is constantly serving one another in the Godhead. It's a way of putting God's nature on display when we love one another and serve one another. So too often when we think of greatness, we think of our accomplishments and what they say about us. But Jesus calls us to greatness in the form of serving others. It's not about them seeing what we do so they can affirm us. It's about us doing things that serve them. It's about us doing things that serve one another. And that doesn't say something about us. It says something about God. It says something about Jesus. And it should invite people to take seriously the ultimate and highest act where Jesus has given himself for us. 
Jesus has come into a world where we all struggle with different forms of self-centeredness. It can look different ways, but we all struggle with it. We all struggle to serve one another. We maybe feel overwhelmed and feel like we're not great and we've spent our life trying to hit some measure of greatness so we can feel good about ourselves. But then we feel badly for how we've not cared for other people and it's a terrible cycle, terrible spiral, all kinds of bad effects that come from this. Jesus comes to a world where we're all struggling with this and what does Jesus do? He not only shows us what it looks like to serve other people, he dies on a cross to take our sin. He gives not just things, not just from his wealth. He gives his life. He gives his breath. He gives his blood. So that we could be washed of every single moment that we have been selfish, every single moment that we've been self-serving, every single moment that we have failed to serve others. Jesus dies to forgive us of that and to give us eternal life, to adopt us into his family so that his spirit can be with us, so that Jesus will walk with us through the rest of life, so that we can belong to one another in a body of believers who have also been forgiven by Jesus at the cross of Christ, so that we can walk in joy, so that we can begin to leave our sin behind and walk in victory as we look more and more like Jesus. Jesus gives us this by grace at the foot of the cross to wash us of our sin and give us new, rich, abundant, joyful life. So this fall, we're jumping into this series as we close. Why are we doing this series? God has already done a lot of great things at Grace Community Church to his glory, not to ours, by his doing and not by ours. We praise him for a lot of the things that have happened, not only at our downtown campus, but at at the main campus that's in North Liberty. If you don't know, we're actually one church in two locations been around for a number of decades. And we praise God for the good work that he has done. But we've also been running into some hiccups and some barriers as a church over the last several years. How many of you have ever been to the North Liberty campus and realized that the building is not quite big enough to accommodate the congregation? How many of you know that the North Liberty building does not quite accommodate the bodily needs of the congregation in the form of working air conditioning or heating? Have you been in a sweltering service in the North Liberty building ever? It's not like an object lesson about hell. That's just because the HVAC does not work. That is not intentional. (laughs) We need a new building in North Liberty, but also as a church, both campuses, North Liberty and downtown, we need to work on restructuring. We keep having these goals that we want to try and hit, initiatives that we want to move forward as a church that we think God would have us for. They're good initiatives, but we keep running into hurdles to try crossing those. And so we need some restructuring and we're going through that process right now. So there are important things we need to do as an organization, whether that's a new building in in North Liberty or whether that's restructuring. But there is a way to look great as an organization and still miss the mark. There is a way for us to hit all the goals that we need to hit in terms of restructuring and to have a great building in North Liberty and for us to even do things differently and better downtown. But if we as a body, and not just your pastors, but you included, if this body of believers, if this family of God, if we are not growing to look like Jesus and we have all of these kinds of organizational improvements, but we don't look like Jesus, we are organizationally improved at showing the world what Jesus does not look like. We're organizationally efficient at doing things that don't have to do with the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of God. And we want to ensure that the Lord is leading us into better effectiveness as an organization, but above and beyond that, that we are staying strong as disciples, that we are growing 
as disciples and that as a family of God, we are continuing to look more and more like Jesus. So that's why we're going through this teaching, John 13 through 17. It's rich teaching about how to be a disciple, how to abide in Christ, how to walk with Christ, what the the body of of Jesus, the community of believers should look like, what a church should be. It's a great chance for us to dig into discipleship together. And so I encourage you, if you uh, are a Christian, just keep coming back for this series. It's going to be a great way to dig into what it means to grow as a disciple. If you're a Christian, I also encourage you to remember that growing as a disciple is not what makes us right with God. Growing as a disciple is not how we get right with God. Growing as a disciple is what we do when we remember that by grace and grace alone, he has sent Jesus to save and wash us of our sin. The most, most pronounced and amazing act of Jesus giving of himself is when he died on the cross to wash us of our sin. So I want to encourage you as Christians, take hope in the cross and then keep coming back for this series as we all encourage each other to grow as disciples. And for those of you who are not yet a Christian, maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to do that tonight. That's for the first time. Place your faith in Jesus. I invite you to do what so many here have already done. Place your faith in Jesus. He sees all your flaws. He knows all your foibles. He knows all of your failures. And that's exactly why he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins so that you could be washed, you could be redeemed, and you could have the joy that he gives that is a joy the world cannot give. So I invite you to place your faith in him tonight. And if you're doing that for the first time, we'd love to talk you through that. Pastor Jason will come up at the end of the sermon. You can talk with him. I'm Pastor Steve. Would be glad to talk with you here about that and help you as you take that step of faith. Lord, we praise you for being so good and for showing us what is great. We praise you that you've come into this world to show us that greatness has to do with serving others. And we thank you, Lord God, that you didn't just teach us that as some kind of abstract lesson. But Lord, you powerfully lived that out every day, serving the disciples, serving those who are without hope, serving those who are often overlooked and undervalued, serving sinners who didn't deserve your grace. We thank you that you've come to serve and to give yourself so that we could be redeemed, we could be forgiven, we could be restored. We just thank you for that. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see every day how rich it is that we've been saved by grace, that we would see how rich, how immeasurable your love and your grace is. We would also see, Lord God, what it means to walk and follow after you and to praise you, to live lives of service to you, to honor you, to glorify you. We pray that you would shape us and mold us that we look more and more like Jesus. We pray that you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.